Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Sunday, September 28, 1997. And as the clock wound down on regular time in the ARL Grand Final, the score was locked at 16 all. At marker, as Darren Albert played the ball, John Hoppawati's eyes were fixed on Matthew Johns, and as his body followed to the right, so did 80,000 eyes in the Sydney Football Stadium, waiting for the inevitable field goal attempt. Standing at dummy half, Andrew Johns had other ideas. Stay alive, he quietly told his winger, and moments later, Albert was over. 170 kilometres to the north in Newcastle, however, the party was just getting started. This is part two of Steel City Miracles, the 38th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, I'm at the bottom of my game. <laughs> I'm at the Newcastle Knights. That's not how I want to start it, but anyway. <laughs> I, <laughs> but, uh, I'm sure by the end of this episode, you'll be at least somewhere approaching the middle of your game <laughs> because I guess I'm in a reflective mood as we're coming to the end of our journey. But over the course of how many episodes we've done, you know, different episodes have served different functions in our series. There are some that are, you know, kind of side tangents. There are some that are like laying the groundwork for uh, a more important chapter or a more important part to the chapter. And then there are those certain chapters or those certain episodes that are just right in the heart of the story and are pivotal to any way you wanted to tell the Super League story. And to me, this is one of those latter ones. It's just so crucial and such a rare moment of positivity in a pretty uh, turbulent three years of rugby league. Well, the feedback on part one has been incredible. Lots of messages, lots of emails. Um, shout out to my uh, ice hockey teammate, Adam, who's a bit older than me. Newcastle boy was giving me a bit of um, insight into his time in the city as well at that time. It's been really good. Yeah, I was really happy with that as well. And after we've done the main event of the Hunter Mariners story, we get to do this like <laughs> little postscript. Well, it's funny you mentioned that um, sort of ray of sunshine in a dismal couple of years. I mean, yet again, I'm going to do the unthinkable and compare it to actual war, the kissing the nurse on the street photo. Yeah. There's minor shades of that for Newcastle. Well, absolutely. And you know, I've got it in the notes that one old fella told Paul Harrigan in the aftermath that it was the biggest event he'd seen since the end of the war. Good Lord. So it really did have this outsized importance to Newcastle. And really, as we're going to tell as we get into the episode, the actual game itself is kind of relatively minor compared to the just unprecedented scenes of celebration and everything that followed in Newcastle. So we're going to get into it all in this episode, and we'll start with a little recap of where Newcastle were and 
how they got to the grand final. And I should say that unlike other grand final episodes we've done, this is basically completely one-sided. So Manly rarely get a mention in this episode. It is very much Newcastle focused. So apologies to Manly fans, although I don't know if there will be many Manly fans that will actually stomach listening to this one. So, <laughs> But that's another factor that people were just jack of Manly as well at that time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And for them to be the recipient of this fairy tale is pretty good. Yeah, and we've got more of that talk as we go on as well. So Newcastle in 1997 very much had a point to prove. So they had a huge 1995, made the semis, they had the Johns brothers emerge and the future just looked so bright and then bombed out hard in 1996. A fair few reasons in play for that. There was disharmony between the administrators and the players. If we go back to our you've just fucked the club <laughs> line after the Knights players stayed loyal to the ARL. <laughs> there was a feeling in the town and among some of the staff that the money had gone to their heads and they weren't playing with the same passion or spirit after getting their big payday. Big heads. Big heads and a sense that the town were thinking of them as such and maybe there was a bit of disillusionment about the Knights in Newcastle, which it's so funny that that was the point they started 1997 on and ended it on like the all-time high. But a big part of the problem in 1996 came down to Andrew Johns. So he in particular, by his own admission, really struggled to grapple with the extra attention he had gotten uh, and all the extra pressure and responsibility placed on his shoulders. And we didn't know at the time about his mental health problems and his you know, substance problems and just being a, basically a drongo at the time. So Yeah, and that's it. At the time, it was just like, look at this drongo. <laughs> there was no like, look as to what could be behind it. Paul Harrigan in his book had this to say about Andrew Johns. Joey came back from the 95 World Cup a changed person. He was no longer one of those wide-eyed kids full of enthusiasm and curiosity. He was a young man with a different attitude. The changes were evident when we all got together over summer to start the hard work required to get ready for the 96 season. And that just carried on throughout the year. There was no chemistry in their training. There was anger among the players. And it all seemed to start and end with Joey and his attitude. And I think looking at his type of depression, you know, there's different ways of being depressed. There's the kind of, you know, quiet, keeping it to yourself and the stereotypical, oh, we didn't even know he was upset. And then there's the type of depression that, even though it wasn't commonly named in 1997, it was just a literal cloud over his head and everyone around him was swept into it. I remember his brother talking about it at one time, one of these interviews, and um, he described it just like that, I think. You could tell what training was going to be like just by the cloud around Joey. Yeah, and in Joey's book, he said that Within the Knights in a Sanctum, it was referred to as the Cyclone, that it was just casting, you know, a spell over the whole team and, and everyone got swept up in it. So it was badly affecting the team. There's still a lot of people, including my friends and family, that think it's all bullshit and Joey was just being a dickhead. But um, it's one of those things that just affects pure genius. And the guy is pure genius in football. Yeah, and we go back to our 1996 season recap and the infamous red hair game against Manly. 
which was held up as the ultimate lairish behavior <laughs> and big head all the rest of it when it was like a literal cry for help from Joey in the <laughs> in the only way he knew to reach out that's where rugby league fails sometimes <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can't see the lair for the trees type thing <laughs> so newcastle failed to make the semi-finals in 1996 and something had to change. So for Joey, that was getting out of his comfort zone and out of Newcastle and going on a surfing trip to the Philippines. Oh, yeah. It's a major shift, surfing at um, Bar Beach to a different beach. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing about it is it seems to hold this outsized importance in the mythology of this night story. He took this time to get his head right. He was with a surfing buddy who out on the waves basically told him to pull his head in <laughs> and to change his attitude. Yeah. I mean, um, it was just on the drink and going to the brothels in Newcastle, but then in the Philippines, he was sweet, you know? <laughs> Chang gave him a few tips on local nightlife. The funny thing about this surfing trip, which Joey and others have used as this catalyst and this chance to reset and come back to the new season with a refreshed outlook, is that I think there's a bit of the hero's journey in Joey's Super League arc. So there's these events beyond his control that thrust him into the limelight before his time. You know, in a different era, he has the chance to develop at a normal rate and he's coming in to the, the rep scenes under the likes of Stuart and Langer and is probably breaking in at a point in his career where he's maybe more stable and more able to handle the pressure. I think you're so right with that. I mean, it was just the time it was war. Yeah. Kids get thrown into the deep end, unfortunately. Exactly. And, and that's what happened. And then 1996, to stay on the hero's journey theme, is his refusal of the call. <laughs> Almost this petulant, well, I'm not going to be what you tell me I have to be. I'm going to dye my hair red and play badly against Manly. <laughs> And then 1997 is the crossing of the threshold. He makes peace with his responsibilities and steps up to be that champion that he was expected to be. And the all is lost moment is like a minute to go there. Um, you got to go down the blind side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you were telling the Joey story as a mythological saga, this surfing trip would be some key moment of enlightenment. In the belly of the whale. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. But my hot take is that it actually wasn't the surfing trip. It was the injury he suffered in a trial match against Manly in 1997 that made him miss the first half of the season effectively. So as we discussed in our uh, rep chapter for 1997, he went into state of origin having played only 30 minutes of club football that year. These pure footballer types can get away with that. No one else can. Mm. But what I think it did for Joey was to make him struggle to feel part of the team and feel like he owed Newcastle because he wasn't justifying his pay and the responsibility he carried. And I think that made him hungrier and more willing and able to perform. So I'm saying it was the injury, not the surf trip. I reckon it's something on in the Philippines that was um, very spiritual. Yeah. An underrated aspect of the Newcastle story in relation to this injury, was the addition of Leo Dinova to the team. It's one of the great tragedies that he was like 18th man or whatever left out of the grand yeah. final because, you know, huge impact. Yeah, 
unexpectedly became the buy of the year. Not only did he, you know, hold down the spot while Joey was injured, but he played so well that they, you know, had to juggle getting both of them into the team and he kept them going. And I don't know if the Knights make the grand final without Dinova there. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like they may well have been out of contention by the time Joey came back. So I know from doing this research how beloved Leo Dinova is to this day in Newcastle and what a key part of the folklore his story is. And it was an era of breakouts all across the park in Newcastle. So you had Owen Craigie in his could-be-anything era. That era went for about 13 seasons, but... Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Joey calling him the most naturally talented player he'd ever seen. Adam McDougall had made his club debut for the Knights that year. Uh, Matt Gidley and Darren Albert had cemented their spots and really broken through. You also had the first grade debuts of Mark Hughes, Jason Moody, and Danny Baderis, which I was staggered to discover this, that he actually debuted during the 97 season. It seems like there's never a year he wasn't playing for the Knights. It was like he was there in 88. Yeah, yeah. So they had this core of a great team and some seasoned veterans. So everything was coming together at the right time. Well, let me pour a bit of negativity on that great team. It was great, so well-rounded. You know, looking down the squad in my prep, it's like, is this the drug cheat All-Stars? There's three or four known drug cheaters in there. Everyone glosses over it as usual. It's really bad. And I think in a, it might have been a Hall of Fame discussion. I can't remember when we discussed the Mad Dog thing. But I was more forgiving of that excuse than you were. But just guilt by association, just so many drug cheats all the way through that squad. Especially when the ultimate game was by Robbie O. Yeah, and then mm. five minutes later, he's, he's a cop in a band. Yeah. Even like Steve Crow, it came out that in 1996, he was found to have steroids in his system. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. And the story was they were prescribed by his doctor to help him get over an injury. And I think there is a naivety of players that you could get away with then that you can't now. But it's when it's just one after another in so short an era... You'd rather buy it from a GP than a douchebag at the gym, but um, still. Yeah. Well, that's cured his good boy guidance there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as looks go, fair to say, not a good one. <laughs> but there was a lot going on with the Knights and the Johns brothers in particular off the field. So they were uh, free agents at the end of the 1997. And so there was a, a season-long fight over their services And at certain stages, it didn't look like they would be staying at the Knights. So Rugby Union was circling. There were other big clubs in the hunt. Uh, Even Souths were given a chance due to uh, Ken Shine's friendship with Gary Johns. So I I don't know how that came about. But when you're the calibre of Andrew and Matthew Johns, really Souths is probably not going to be your destination. There's a handful of clubs that you can go to as players of that stature. And one of them, of course, was Manly. And I would have loved to see one or both of them sign just to see Gary Johns's reaction to them signing there. Uh, <laughs> this was his statement in relation to a controversy involving Manly that we're going to discuss later in the episode. But he said, no wonder everyone hates them. <laughs> You're getting the true feelings every time with Gary. Yeah, I know. I love it. So they were being marketed separately, even though it was considered a tragedy if they were to ever be split. 
And for a while, it looks like Matthew would go and Andrew would stay. I was on the tragedy bandwagon saying they should never split him up. But once he went, it was good for both of them. Yeah. Got Matthew out of his shadow. Got Joey total control type thing. Got Sean Rudder's hands on the ball more. Yeah, which, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so to sign them, there was a view that the ARL would have to do their best to keep them in Newcastle. And there were rumours around the game of a private fund saved up for retaining players and keeping them in the ARL and at their clubs. What, with all that extra money flying around the game? Yeah. After incinerating a quarter of a billion? And with that, there was a view that Newcastle were deliberately lowballing in their offers <laughs> with, with the view that the ARL would, would come in and top it up. This was Adam Hawes in the Rugby League Week. The ARL risk setting a dangerous precedent if they help Newcastle with their offer. Other clubs will be certain to come cap in hand to Phillips Street whenever one of their high-profile players came off contract. It's like the line of clubs going cap in hand to Phillips Street is like a Steinbeck novel. I don't think anyone (laughs) would have actually changed. (laughs) So in the end, the Knights did come to the party and the Johns brothers were retained, uh, signing contracts that, in Peter Fralingos' words, were expected to tie them to the club for the rest of their football careers. <laughs> this was a three-year deal. <laughs> I don't know why they always push that contract for life angle when it was clearly not a contract for life, always. Yeah, so Andrew Johns, 23 years old, <laughs> a three-year <laughs> three deal, night for life. It doesn't make <laughs> sense. Uh, the other contract drama the Knights were having was with Darren Albert, who had signed with the Hunter Mariners. For 1998 and beyond. No one mentions that little tidbit, do they? No. and Is he a traitor or is he a hero? <laughs> well, uh, in one report uh, in the Rugby League Week, it was written, Walking down the streets of Newcastle, Darren Albert feels the eyes burning through him. People haven't hassled me or said anything, but you can tell what they're thinking. <laughs> you dirty northerner. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So by August, he had made it clear that he didn't want to leave. (laughs) Backflipping. Yeah, backflipping. And this kept on going, you know, through the Knights' grand final win and beyond. And this is case closed right here. Darren Albert's quote, my future is with the Knights. (laughs) So there you go. I know you got a contract, but his future's with the Knights. And the other thing about it is, so... The Hunter Mariners had signed him as a 19-year-old in 1995. He was at that stage earning like 50 bucks a week or something like that. And he'd been dropped from reserve grade to President's Cup. It wasn't clear that he was going to have any future at the Knights. So the Mariners snapped him up, got him for $60,000 a season, which was a massive contract for Albert when he signed. But, you know, once he became the grand final hero... That was a cheap deal. And so the Mariners get punished for their astute player identification. That's rugby league in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah. In the end, the ARL did a sweetheart deal with Super League and Darren Albert was released from his Super League contract in exchange for two Penrith players, uh, Phil Adamson and Carl McNamara. They were released from the loyalty agreement court case (laughs) that would have sent them back to the ARL. It's like the um, RM-Contra affair. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So a fair bit going on at the Knights, but a team that was primed and ready to take the next step. So let's talk about the grand final and getting there. And one thing that really struck me in all this research was 
this spiritual undercurrent that ran right through. It was coming out in press reports, in the various biographies and accounts I've read. There are all these like spiritual connections, which it's just strange to me. So firstly, Mal really said that his wife, Susan, had gone to a local clairvoyant named Billy, who had told her that the Knights were going to win the ARL that year. And if you think that's just a one-off, Lee Jackson's wife had also been to the same clairvoyant and was told the same thing, (laughs) which made me think that Billy was just saying that to anyone who walked through her doors that year. In the clairvoyant business, I'm not an expert, but you want to give out more good news than bad. (laughs) Uh, Really, I get the sense he's a God-fearing man just from some of his accounts. I couldn't get confirmation on that, but that's my sense. I get the sense that um, God's fearful of him. (laughs) (laughs) And one of his ways of getting the boys revved up for the grand final was a document penned by a Christian pastor who was later killed in Zimbabwe, Brendan Manning. And this is what really uh, sent the boys in preparation My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured, away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ." Stirring, but I mean, um, it couldn't be bought or you know turned around or whatever. But it could be murdered by the locals. <laughs> uh, the spiritual connection goes all the way through to the team's psych up song, which was "Holy Grail" by Hunters and Collectors. Don't underestimate that. Yeah, that became their theme all through the final series. There was a sign outside one of the churches that said, God bless the Knights. The day after the grand final, that was amended to, and he did. (laughs) And then Chief in the aftermath saying, most of our players don't have the slightest hint of spirituality about them, but even the hardest of the hard-nosed among them could sense something unique about all of this. The way the game ended, the circumstances surrounding the whole week, then the climax of it all. I'm sure we were getting looked after somewhere. There was something going on at a higher level. Well, I'll tell you what, mate. When I watched the game back, I just noticed that they were moving as like one entity. They were so together and mm. you could feel the spirit just in a football team sense. Yeah. It was electric. Yeah. I'm sure if there is a god he had better things to do on that Sunday in September than watch the Knights beat Manly. But you can just feel this togetherness and that becomes something palpable. It really was. When it's not only just within the team but the whole city, you know, it's a moving force and and I do think that played a massive part in everything that happened. Everything came together at the right time. Chief was at like yeah. perfect veteran status. Um, Adam mm. Muir was at the peak of his powers. Robbie O as well. John's boys coming into their own. Um, Albert, you know, Mal really just perfect hard man for the job. Everything come together at the right time. Like we said in the first chapter, all the socio uh, and political issues in Newcastle all, all at the right time. Barbara Davis even. It was just perfection. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's it. It was just right place, right time. Because there have been many great teams and teams that have done heroic stuff on the field. Uh, but when that all comes together with all this off-field stuff and a, a town just coming together, it, it's something 
really magical. So let's get into the town. And from the time that they made the grand final, it was red and blue everywhere, streamers, balloons, bread rolls in the bakeries, sausages in the butchers. I miss that. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. It's kind of gone the way of the crosses to like Belmore or wherever else on grand final day when you see like the news reporter showing the town all G'd up for the grand final. I really miss it. So there was a groundswell building in Newcastle and soon it became apparent that this could be something that might get out of hand. So Mal Reilly's first instinct was to have the team leave the town so they didn't get overwhelmed. But the players then convinced him to stay. That would have been one of the biggest blunders, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And Robbie O's account was, they were thinking of putting us in camp to get away from the hype in Newcastle. But in 10 years' time, we would have been wondering what it was like in town. We would have missed all this. And the thing is, you've always dreamed something like this would happen. And now it's happening. So why not enjoy it? So to his credit, really listened to his players, changed his mind and kept them in town with the advice to just not read anything, try to stay focused and and try to stay away from it. So they left for Sydney the day before the grand final and had 10,000 people meeting them at Marathon to see them leave on the bus. Sid Foggs. Yeah, the Sid Foggs legend begins on this day. And from that point, already the, the players were, you know, having tears in their eyes and becoming moved by this sentiment. But as they left Newcastle, it just grew and grew as cars lined the highways and everywhere they turned, there were cars and people like waving them on. There's no way Chief's going to see that and come back empty. No, and I love this quote from Chief's book. At some point, we crossed the line where we were physically out on our own, having broken away from our supporters' emotional fuel tank. But their support had been boiled down and distilled into a pure essence, which each of us carried with him. Well. And so in the end, for the grand final, more than 60 Sid Foggs were employed to take the fans who were going down as well. So it was a, a true convoy from Newcastle to Sydney. The players were camped for the night at the Coogee Holiday Inn, which made Chief feel at ease because that was where he'd always gone for state of origin and test camps. So he said, our presence here meant one thing, big game time. If I had to sleep anywhere besides home the night before the grand final, this was the place to be. And as they were heading down to Sydney, Chief started thinking about inspiration and he cast his mind to one of those New South Wales camps in Coogee and a story Gus had told about preparing the 91 Panthers for their eventual grand final win, that he asked the players what it would mean to them to win the grand final and what they'd do to make sure it happened. And in Chief's words, ever since Gus told the team that story, I tucked it away in the back of my mind as something I could perhaps use one day with the Knights. So the team were at dinner the night before the grand final and Chief decided to make his move. He told the team that he wanted to gather for a players-only meeting in his room, uh, met with resistance from some of the players. Tony Butterfield said, no more meetings, mate. We've had enough. <laughs> Matthew Johns, only lukewarm on the idea. But Chief just said, just go with me. And so they all headed to his hotel room. Chief on his way back saying, I started thinking how I was actually going to pull this off. What sort of agenda or structure should there be? Would it have the desired effect? Would the boys be on my wavelength? They all crowded into the hotel room with the theme, why do you want to win this game? Chief started it off and going back to the themes covered in part one of this chapter, he said, we're a bunch of coal miners and coal miners' sons. 
Here we are. We've all come down to Sydney together, all the boys from Newcastle. So let's see how we go against the best team in the world. Chief choking up with emotion as he spoke those words. Each speaker in turn feeding off the last, all having you know different ways of approaching their speech. Interestingly, Joey was talking a lot about the technical side of things and how he was going to create gaps and tackle everyone. So every player brought their own personality to their address. Then it got to Mark Glanville, and you could sense a change once Glanville started speaking. So Chief's version of what Glanville said starts like this. I've battled away here for 10 years, and unlike some of you blokes, I haven't got a lot to show for it because I never really got a start in rep footy. But I've always loved playing for the Knights and playing with you blokes and the blokes before you. And now I've got a chance to win something to show for it. All through your career, back to when you are a kid, you always think grand finals will come around one day. But the reality for most people is they don't. As a young bloke, you'll always imagine you'll get a chance to play in one. And now this is it for me. This is my chance to play in a grand final. And it means everything to me. And as he continued, he eventually just lost it and started like bawling this you know, torrent of tears. I mean, it's so emotional. And it was something that the players hadn't seen in Glanville before. He was a bit of a prankster in the team and not someone who was particularly emotional or reverent. So the senior players could see the young players change as a result of this speech. And it had such an impact that, you know, Joey walked out of the room saying, there's no way we're losing this game. That's amazing. And Chief too saying... At that instant, I knew the 97 Australian Rugby League Grand Final belonged to the Newcastle Knights. I tell you what, man, it's only a guy like Chief could pull that off. He's already on the nose for all the meetings they're having. One more meeting could have switched him off. Rugby League players spook like horses, and yet he turns into that. It's incredible. This is what I wanted to talk about. I mentioned what was going through Chief's mind as he was walking back to the hotel room. He was thinking about what the agenda was, what the plan was, like... He didn't even have a plan or a fixed idea of what this meeting would look like or what it was achieved, but he just had this innate sense that it was the right thing to do and that it would work. And to me, it echoes Chief drives the bus. He signs with the ARL despite knowing what the rest of his team would do, signs with the ARL when no other players were signed, but he does it because he's got this innate trust in his abilities as a leader. Like he walks into battle without turning around, just knowing that his men will be right there behind him. Based on pure heart, pure authenticity. There's no bullshit in chief and the boys knew it. Yeah, yeah. And funny thing was that he learned a lot of what he knew about leadership from Mal. So Matt John said, chief told us that when you're playing alongside Mal, it's like you're playing alongside your dad. We're like, what do you mean? He says, you just know he's going to look after you and you know it's going to end well. That's how it was with Chief, mate. When you played alongside the Chief, you knew he had your back, you knew he was going to look after you and you knew it was going to end well. And he knew he had to go out there and take on Carol, but he did so. Yeah. So in his speech, he said, as your captain, I guarantee you that come what may, I refuse to be overawed tomorrow. I refuse to have any excuses. Whatever it takes, I promise you, I won't give up. I'll be there for you. I'm not walking off the field until the job's done. I refuse to lose. So that was his mindset going into the game. And, you know, there's the famous you can't get sent off in a grand final line. And, I mean, that's the way he played, especially in those first (laughs) five or ten minutes. 
But what about the difference between those great captains of that era compared to the modern five co-captains rubbish? Mm. The captain's almost gone obsolete when it was so important back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lockie was the last chief flight captain. I feel like it hasn't completely gone away. There are definitely those inspirational leaders still, but it was almost like a specialist position in this era. Absolutely. And now it has been folded into that whole, you know, leadership model, which like has its benefits as well. I think both have merit, but it's definitely just a different thing now. This is completely irrelevant, but I just have to segue for any other the Sydney people. I was reminded by a friend of mine that on the night before the grand final, so the night the boys were having their meeting in Chief's <laughs> hotel room, uh, I was at Grudge Fest at uh, Prince Alfred Park near Central Station, which was a free all-ages festival that day. Uh, it was Grinspoon, Veruca Salt, Bush, Bloodhound Gang, and a few <laughs> others I can't remember, but um, I didn't remember that that was the day before the grand final, so anyone else who was there? Veruca Salt were pretty good, actually. That, that was my standout of the day. Um, but grand final day itself, there was a last-minute beach session at Coogee where they all went down, threw a footy around for a while, then headed to the game. To me, going down and putting your ankles on that sand and just it would tire you out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know the professional athletes, but I mean, do you need a beach session on the day of the grand final? Maybe it's just a grounding exercise for the Novocastrians, you know, <laughs> just feel the sand between their toes. I get the walk along the foreshore, that I get. Yeah. Just get the blood going, but the soft sand on the ankles, you know. But from the beach, it was off to the SFS. And as always, we have to recap the grand final entertainment. <laughs> Headed by Christine Arnoux, who was everywhere in 1997. Talk about being at the peak of your powers. Yeah. <laughs> she was a fox. Jimmy Barnes was there singing Simply the Best. To celebrate 90 years of league, they had uh, 50 former greats wheeled out, stars from the 30s right through to the 90s, manly players being booed by the parochial Newcastle crowd. <laughs> I would really like to know what was happening in the manly hotel room with Hopper and Craig Field, ETL. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this was following on from Super League's Grease Spectacular, maybe a bit more muted. Uh, in addition to Christine Arnoux and Jimmy Barnes, there was the Golden Kangaroos marching band and the I Australian mean, Cowgirls dancers. What the hell? The school kids in colour-coded T-shirts were mandatory in 1997. Well, I so appreciate 1,200... <laughs> 1200 on the field as part of the entertainment with the theme of for the fans so peter metzner was the organizer who said we don't want to say too much at this point but there will be plenty of crowd participation out there involving cannons <laughs> do you reckon peter metzner had a, a long track record in the stanford's yeah. <laughs> uh the ground announcer probably made the biggest splash in terms of the entertainment side of things so at one stage, he was heard to call out, we all hate Manly, don't we? <laughs> Partisan hack. So that ground announcer was Russell Barwick. He claimed that that was a bit wrong. He said, is anyone out there from Manly? And then there were a lot of boos. And he claims that he then said, surely everybody out there doesn't hate Manly. So that was his version of it. But Manly were fired up. Peter Peters 
lodged a formal complaint <laughs> with ARL media manager John Brady. <laughs> And they gave the Eagles an apology. So well, I'm sure that was worth it after losing a grand final in the last few seconds. But. <laughs> uh, Julie Anthony, the national anthem queen, was on board, of course. And this anthem has some significance to me. So when it was played over TV, John Hopwadi was shown poking his tongue out on camera. Which I don't like really care about, you know, disrespecting the anthem or anything like that, but maybe it shows that your head isn't where it needs to be. It's just amazing looking at, like, he's such a good player, right? We've all covered him in the Hall of Fame's, what an amazing player he was. It was just considered a bit of a lair at that point. We didn't know what the future was going to hold. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it's maybe like he needed to be like that yeah, to get what, the most think, yeah. out of his. It's natural, yeah. 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 So I'm not going to kill Hopper over it. I mean, it's a disgrace for the anthem, but I, mean, <laughs> I get what you mean. Yeah. So we get to the game itself, which was a promoter's dream, the culmination of this three-year rivalry coming in the middle of the battle, two of the poster clubs for the ARL meeting. Well, can we just talk about the amazing um, modern drainage to put a dead um, grass, um, looks like a farmer's drought, ground out for the showpiece game of the year yeah it, um, it really did look terrible didn't it it was just a par for the course in that era yeah and the thing about it is i'm prepared to be forgiving of the you know the seg trust or whoever it was responsible for the groundkeeping because i've been watching a few english soccer documentaries lately focused on the 90s and they look just as bad even yeah. for their like showcase game so i think it was just Technology Have some rain, your field's fucked. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. It looks shit, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so between the modern drainage and these modern wingers, there's, <laughs> you know, like, uh, it's a different game. So Manly had the edge in this rivalry, 11 victories in a row. The last Newcastle Knights win had been in 1992. Joey said that he wasn't sure if they could beat Manly. And I don't know if you caught this on the post-match interviews but they interviewed Robbie O Davis and they said oh you know not many people thought you could beat Manly and he said oh to be honest I didn't think we could beat Manly so even with all this belief in the team I think the players knew what they were up against in a real champion Manly side Newcastle were carried along by the strong Knights contingent in the crowd it, it was one of those like it, it looked like 90% Knights that's an example of the type of fans mainly won't travel over the bridge, but these players will get to sit fogs down for two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. So as the game got underway, one of the stories that had been brewing all week was the injury to Andrew Johns, which in many ways I think this story's fallen through the cracks a bit. Like certainly in comparison to some of the other famous grand final injuries you can think of, there's so much other mythology wrapped around this game that the fact that Joey had like broken ribs and had punctured his lung a week before doesn't get much of a mention. It's astounding. I mean, at the time they were saying he could die if he plays, so that was big news at the time. But I mean, how did he play so well with that injury? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And and like you could see him not 100% throughout the game. At one point he even tried to come off and Mal really got on the headphones and said, Get him back out there. Just tell him he's got to go back. (laughs) (laughs) If he dies, he dies. (laughs) I I like this quote about it from really. 
I think there are times in a football match when pain and fatigue set in that a player sometimes need to be told. Fatigue and injury make cowards of everybody, don't they? <laughs> it's such a hard nut. But I give Joey props. He never complained about it. He might have no. just thought it was better for the team if he gets off because he's incapacitated. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. he was still a man's man about it, typical footballer style. And the story about what had happened didn't come out till years later. So there was all this speculation before the game. But so basically, in the semi final against Parramatta, he cracked his ribs. But that alone should rule you out of the next game. Yeah, I know. Yeah, totally. So missed the next game against Manly, that dead rubber semi final, came back for the prelim against the Bears and was, you know, feeling sore at half time. So got a pain killing injection by their club doctor, which went wrong and went into his lung, which caused a puncture. So this was his account of that that day against the Bears. Mal really was standing over me saying, what's going on? Get out there. So I hopped up and ran ran down the tunnel at the Sydney Football Stadium and went out to play. When I made it to the field, I could hear this gargling in my chest. Brr, brr, every time I'd breathe. I just couldn't run, had no energy. (laughs) <laughs> Meanwhile, Mal's treating him like a Zimbabwean missionary. Yeah. <laughs> Cannon fodder. <laughs> so the doctor predictably was quite traumatised by the incident. Joey would make light of it in years to come and say, you know, that's not going near my lungs, is it, Anytime he had to get a needle? Who was the doctor? But uh, a doctor named Peter McGough. Peter McGeek, yeah, he was my family doctor. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, you wouldn't have seen him the week after that because he was so traumatized that he closed his practice for a few days. Yeah, but he used to have all the uh, memorabilia. And, yeah, uh, right. Wow. His wife's a doctor too. She looked after us more than him, but yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, so I think Joey did him a favor by playing and winning the game because I don't think he's got a job at the Knights in 1998 if Joey was ruled out of the grand final. Could happen to anybody, mate. Punch her along with Yeah. <laughs> And that he could die became a source of tension between the Knights and Manly with Nathan Gibbs, the Manly doctor, saying it was reckless and irresponsible to even consider playing him and that he could die. It was all of those things, but you go and explain that to Mal really in chief. Yeah, yeah. And Newcastle fired back and said, he's not in your medical care. That's an ill-informed comment. Um, this was the source of the Gary Johns, no wonder everyone hates them comment. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, it's his son there on the <laughs> Yeah, his son in hospital for two days and he had the support of his family in a few different ways. So uh, at one point he had to take a suppository, which he didn't know what it was at that point and was shocked when the nurse told him what was about to happen. So he said, no way. Uh, if anyone's going to do that, it's going to be my mum. So <laughs> lucky her. So yeah, so she was charged with inserting the suppository. I don't know. I want that in the hands of a trusted professional, <laughs> but as commitment to the cause, though, Mrs. Jones. <laughs> but um, the whole thing. This is a common theme in rugby league. Blokes would rather risk dying than miss a grand final. Yeah, there's no denying the toughness of these blokes. Oh, absolutely. So in hospital all week, only has one training session with the team and goes into the grand final. As we've said, you can tell he was a bit underdone, but obviously he got it done when it counted. Um, but to talk about that first half, we got to talk about Harrigan and his 
assault on Manly in, in those opening stages. That was war. That really was. And it's spoken about with such fondness among Newcastle and uh, Newcastle players in particular saying that he really like laid the foundations and he, he set the stage. But I'm putting it to you that I think it had a destabilizing effect on the Knights. I feel they were so frantic. Like that first half was so chaotic. Yeah. They couldn't go any other way there. Mark Carroll and Paul Harrigan together in a grand final. Yeah. It couldn't go any other way. And both of them stepped up like you knew they would. Mm. So it was Manly's half. The Knights scored a late try to make it 10-8. But then just before halftime, Manly scored to go into halftime 16-8 up. While we're on the subject of halfbacks, Craig Field had an absolute blinder. Yeah, yeah, and and he got injured as well. I thought Craigfield was, yeah, I thought he was really good. The goal kicking was uh, typical for the era, atrocious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and totally glossed over. I was like, it's worth half the uh, amount of points as a try, but we're just missing. Yeah. I think in general, it was a fairly poor standard of play in the first half in particular. I will say this, though, the frantic nature and the um, unstructured nature of it was awesome to watch and um, yeah, made me it, really miss that era. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was. I mean, it was a fantastic spectacle, but it just shows you how different the game was then. It's really I, – I feel even like watching a game from the 90s 10 years ago wasn't as confronting as watching a game from the 90s is now. Like it's almost a completely different sport. It is. It really is. So the teams go into the sheds, frayed tempers in the Knights dressing room. Matthew John saying that, you know, a couple of boys were like, come on, you got to tie that up. That was ridiculous. And going at each other before someone said, hey, boys, what are we going to stay as cool as? And we all said, we'll stay cool like the Fonz, which was one of their catch cries. So Henry Winkler <laughs> deserves a lot of uh, praise from people of Newcastle. <laughs> and I love this from Joey. I remember shouting, I'll get us there. You get us right into the game and I'll win it for us. The confidence of that kid. Yeah. With half a lung and um, I know his early 20s. Yeah. So they go back out for the second half. Uh, the early incident, which bears some discussion, is Adam McDougall stomping on Jeff Tooby's head. <laughs> it really was a dirty game, wasn't it? I like Mal Reilly's assessment. He said, Certainly there was a bad moment when he caught Adam McDougall's knee in the head while making a tackle. I prefer to think that what followed was an accident. Adam showed genuine concern immediately, and I like to think that it wasn't deliberate. It was uh, we- criminally reckless, if anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's about the best you can say about it. So Tuvi later got 12 stitches near his eye from the stomping. He was laying on the ground in the aftermath, being booed by Newcastle fans. <laughs> but then gets back up and finishes the game. And I, I don't think there's a single player that we've discussed in this series that I've had my assessment of so profoundly changed as Jeff Tovey. I think I'm with you as well. I just always thought he was so overrated and just such a level below the great halfbacks of the era. But the more you watch of him, like not only was he a very capable player, there's no doubt that he's in the very handful of the toughest players to have ever played. I think he's an honest-to-God contender for number one. Yeah, yeah. Brad Fittler said, the guy is simply the toughest player to ever lace on a boot. Even Ray Price. I've run into some pretty hard footballers in my time, blokes who are tough and cruel and could cop anything you threw at them, but I've never seen anybody tougher than Jeff Toovey. 
there's the guy probably challenging him for number one. And, um, yeah, yeah. That's pretty high praise. And when I think about Tuvi and that toughness and guys that could handle it in any era, as Freddie said in another quote, I feel like there are some players who are just a product of their style of times. Some wouldn't be tough enough for the old days. Some would be too psychopathic for the modern day. But some have the toughness and talent to do it in any era. And I think Tuvi is definitely one of those. So as the game progresses, Manly start fading in the latter stage. They can't get a field goal. They only took one attempt in the end, which is probably costly. The field goals were atrocious as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, I mean, you're in a grand final, practice a few. Yeah. At a certain point, I feel like they just stopped playing football. They definitely showed signs of tightening when Newcastle somehow stayed loose. Yeah. Which is incredible when you think about it, their first grand final. Yeah, for sure. And Newcastle were coming on so strong in that last 10 or 15 minutes. And it all comes down to Robbie O'Davis in the end. Just incredible game from him. It was majestic. Yeah, and getting the try to even the scores wasn't Cliff Lyons' best game. With time running out, Cliff Lyons running the ball on the last tackle and handing it back to the Knights just on halfway. Well, I mean, uh, same as Joey, you know, if it comes off, he's a hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And that's the thing, like watching that play, it was kind of on. It wasn't a bad play. It was just like a low percentage play. Mm. And as we get to that handover and, you know, the final stages of the game, I just want to briefly touch on Lee Jackson. So he'd arrived in Newcastle in 1995, an English test player, and he came with a lot of hype. Andrew Johns thought that he was the best hooker in the world, with the exception of Steve Walters. He put Robbie McCormack in reserve grade, but over that season failed to like really get his best form. And the Knights didn't want him after 1996, but basically because of his ARL contract, they were forced to keep him. Mm-hmm. So the ARL couldn't ship him to another team. So he had to stay with the Knights and it was the ARL paying his wages as a result. <laughs> then as 1997 goes on, Jackson loses his place to Brett Clements who came on as hooker. Clements, very sadly, gets injured the game before the grand final. So he's out. Shocker. Terrible for Brett Clements. Lee Jackson, the obvious replacement, really goes with Bill Peden as starting hooker. Masterstroke too, because he was amazing. Yeah. But, you know, pretty embarrassing for a test hooker, you know, put on the bench by his former test coach when he'd arrived with all this hype. He was falling out with Joey. This came to a boil the following year in a game where he did a pretty bad pass from dummy half. Joey was seen picking up the ball, shaping to throw it at Lee Jackson's head. (laughs) The old dark cloud, man. (laughs) Then seen mouthing to the sideline, fucking get him off. (laughs) I mean, how is that going to make you feel? Well, I can tell you, (laughs) my hockey team probably say it all the time. But um, um, Yeah, not good form from Joey. No, and so they fell out after that. He was out after 1998. There was a a player-led push to sign Jason Deeth from the Cowboys. They got Steve Walters instead in the end, but that was it for Lee Jackson and a, a pretty, you know, bad era for his career in Newcastle. But just going back to the grand final, in a game like this, it's the little moments that do it. And right before the end, Lee Jackson gets the ball from dummy half, 
goes off on a little scoot, then like holds the ball up for Chief, who, you know, runs through for a hit up, makes an extra 10 or 15 metres. I don't know if the Knights are in a position to take that first field goal shot that gets blocked, Mm. that sets up everything else, if he doesn't do that. So in a time where so much went wrong for him and he didn't come to Newcastle as the hero that he might have thought he'd be, he gets on the field with 10 minutes to go and he does his job and he plays his part in getting in the grand final. And and just knowing everything that happened with Lee Jackson, I just thought it was a cool moment when I was watching it. Very cool. And I actually noticed his class in that 10 minutes when I was watching it. Mm. And that's probably the big match test experience coming through there. Yeah, yeah. It was just a veteran play. I'm not saying he's some like Paul Osborne, you know, heroic figure, but it's just a cool thing that he has. Well, let's talk about the fact that the fairy tale might have went to the other John's brother when the field goal hits the um, post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if that goes over, I mean, is that it? Yeah, it is. And the Knights were running into this like really strong wind. If that wind isn't there, that kick probably sails through. He did well to get it as close as he did in the end, really. He must have been thinking 89 when that happened, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the Knights were. Like, Chief said that he thought they were going to extra time and he didn't know if he had anything left, that they'd exhausted everything and were worried that Manly were just going to run him down in extra time. So, of course, it doesn't go to extra time. So, Andrew Johns takes a shot at field goal. That was charged down. And then we get to this famous play. Uh, Mal Reilly's quote on the play was, my first thought was, what am I watching here? Uh, and to lean into the spiritual thing again, my second thought was that surely on such a day we must have had a little help from above. Clairvoyant predicted it. <laughs> but really interesting, he says, I'd like to say it was a move I'd coached. It wasn't. This was just pure, instinctive, brilliant football. The sort of thing this game is really about. And what's striking to me about that is how much of it wasn't, how much of it was just the game intelligence and the thought that Andrew Johns put into his football. So his quote on the play was, Maddie and I had watched videos that season and noticed that just about all the time when play was near the sideline and there was one marker, defenders would chase inside and there would always be a corridor left open behind the play the ball. We'd spoken previously about how easy it would be to dummy and go down the short side into the vacant corridor in the defence. But that's genius right there. Preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. And it's one thing to notice that and do it in a round 21 game Mm. against Parramatta. It's another thing on the very biggest stage when you've got one play, you've got precisely one play to win the game. You're in field goal range and you do this. This is why I love the guy so much as an immortal because it's the pure innate love for the game. He lived and breathed it since he's a kid. Not like one of these yeah. guys, oh, I can't be bothered playing. I'm going to retire early, you know. But loved mm. every single moment of the game. So he's there yeah. doing tape when um, – Yeah. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. And I think in deference to the man, it's only fair to recount this play in his words. I looked over from dummy half and there was John Hopawati staring at Maddie. And his body language showed he was going to charge out and jump Matty and try to charge the kick down. So I said to Darren Albert, who played the ball, stay alive, and then feign left and snuck down the short side to the right, dummied again to my old mate Mark Hughes on the right, then took the tackle of Craig Innes and put Albie in for the try. And the fact he did it offloading as well? 
that's the other thing is taking the tackle of Craig Innes and just... Who was an axe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then being willing to do that, hold it up, and then the rest is history. So just uh, an incredible play. In terms of an individual play, I mean, we can have the debate about where the grand final ranks, but I can't think about this moment without getting goosebumps. Like my hair is standing on end as I'm speaking about this now. Yeah, it's incredible, man. And the way this guy sees the game, like Beethoven sees musical notes, like like he's looking down at chess pieces and this guy's going to go here and I'm going to go here. It's just... Yeah. Dwight Mal really is something biblical about it even. Yeah. Well, to stay on the biblical theme, uh, this was Paul Harrigan's account. It happened right in front of me, but I'm still convinced time stood still. It was unreal. It was impossible. Were we supposed to win? You bet we were. It was as if the arms of God opened up and Darren Albert <laughs> ran right in. And so Darren Albert becomes an instant grand final hero. Uh, and just what a moment to have in your career. Never to be forgotten in 100 years. Yeah. So just an incredible ending to the game. Uh, instantly sparked some talk about where it ranked. Uh, Ian Head said, for sheer drama and knock him down nerve-stretching tension, I'll stick my neck out and say there's never been a greater grand final than last Sunday's. This was my 34th successive grand final as a league scribe. And although momentous memories crowd in of other days, other years, I can't remember ever enjoying the thrusts and parry of the big day more. I personally don't think it beats 89, but it's right up there. I don't think it beats 89. I think for me, 23 has gone past both of them. Well... It's hard to judge on that as an adult. When you see them as a kid, they're so much more special. Yeah, yeah. Um, why I would put 89 above 97, uh, and both of them well ahead of 2015, is 89 just has so many of these little moments all the way mm. through, like just so many moments that if this changes, it's a whole different game. And I think what counts against it as well is... There's just something one-sided about it. Just say Manly had won the game in the same fashion. It would have been a classic game, but I don't think it would have resonated in the same way. Darren Albert, rightfully so, is the most memorable part of this forever and ever, but can't take away from O Davis what a game he had. No. Sublime. Yeah, and recognised as so, winning the Clive Churchill, becoming the first fullback to do it, and fittingly, given Clive Churchill's Nova Castrian origins, it was a Newcastle fullback that was the first to do it. And uh, the similarities don't end there. So Robbie O'Davis, 172 centimetres tall, 75 kilos. Uh, When he was playing, Clive Churchill was 171 centimetres and 74.5 kilos. I mean, underrated toughness for him as well. Mm. I remember him coming through the grades on the wing and he was just, you know, a good little player. I couldn't really get my head around that he was now the premier fullback. Yeah. And I guess because of the drug stuff and because of the fact that he never quite burned as brightly again after 97, like still a very good player when he came back. But I feel like I had underrated him in my memory of him. But the more I've watched him in 97, I was like, wow, he was great this year. Like... Just yeah. an awesome player. There's some good players in the team, though. Um, Adam Ewell was outstanding, pure class, mm. peak of his powers. Matthew Johns had a great game. Yeah, yeah. Constantly testing the line. And there's just all these guys like Troy Fletcher. Yeah. Who I, I thought was sensational yeah. in that game when he got on. And just that classic everyone doing their part. 
Their defense on the wing wasn't particularly strong, allowing Manly those tries in the first half. But, you know, Albert was the one who scored in the end and redeemed himself there. But it was just from 1 to 17, just a really great team performance. But it wasn't just 1 to 17. It was also the story of the players who missed out. So we talked about Brett Clements. Uh, Leo Dinova was the other big story. So in this era, you could have an extended bench and you could pick any four players from that. So he technically could have got on if really had allowed Johns to go off with his punctured lung. But Johns being forced back on meant that there was no place in the team for Leo Dinova. So, you know, really sad um, for all he'd done for the team. But that was recognised by Steve Crow, who gave him his premiership ring. Yeah, he's a good bloke artist again. Yeah. Real legend, Steve Crow. Mm. Just imagine the change in history, in the rugby league history, if Joey comes off and Dinova comes on. Maybe Dinova wins it for him, maybe not, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole thing changes. Yeah. Immortality might be changed. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, by risking Andrew Johns' life, really <laughs> did him a favor. So it was a risk Mal really was prepared to take, don't worry. <laughs> so the two coaches embraced on field, two old friends who'd been on battle together and against each other for decades. Mal really said, out there on the paddock, Bozo and I found each other, shook hands and embraced. It seemed we'd been through so much together in different ways over the years. Words are never easy at those times. I'm honestly not sure what was said. I know I felt for him, understood his disappointment. Yeah, plenty of moments in the sun. Enjoy yours, mate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, It was a a shocker all round for Bozo, who spent his off-season in Vegas. And in Bozo's words, we went to a place called Treasure Island where they were staging a reenactment of a sea battle between England and the United States. A couple of blokes brushed up against me and one of them picked my pocket. The exercise cost me $300. (laughs) Comparable. (laughs) So on to the presentation and Chief's speech, which um, I saw you noted in your notes that you thought it was a good one. I agree. Just from the heart, which is what you'd expect. Yeah. I like this on Mal Really, Mal... Not only you're a great coach, you're a lovely man. Thank you. <laughs> Dude, that's so authentic. I love it. I know. Uh, but then these are really stirring words. To the boys behind me, you'll never see a finer group of men. They tried their absolute hardest today, and it's one of the proudest things in my life to be able to captain these guys. And then, of course, it was the people of Newcastle. We don't survive without you guys. We came out of Newcastle yesterday, and people were lined up for 30 kilometers out of Newcastle to see us off and say goodbye all the way to Gosford. All the boys were crying, and it made the difference. We weren't coming home without the cup. I mean, to Gosford, it's about 55 Ks from Newcastle yeah. to Gosford. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now the party could begin. So after the dressing room, the boys got on the bus, made a little pit stop to a South Sydney pub to get some beer for the journey. Holy Grail blasting in a ghetto blaster on the bus. Uh, Chief said... Shirts were discarded. Someone was doing cartwheels down the aisle. Music was blaring and everyone was into the twoies. I'll never get over the desire for a rugby league man to win a game final just so they can act like geese. (laughs) They're so reserved, sort of hard men in society and then they're doing cartwheels shirtless down the middle of the sick fogs. It's crazy. Uh, And so on the bus ride home, it was from Gosford onwards that cars were once again lining the highway to 
greet the team and wish them on. So by the time they got to Newcastle, traffic had slowed to a crawl as more and more cars were there to celebrate on top of all the convoy of fans heading back from the game. So they got as far as Wall's End where the bus wasn't moving. Andrew Johns went to the front of the bus and asked the driver if he could get off for a second. Uh, So the Johns brothers both get off and next thing are celebrating on top of a police car. (laughs) Get back on and... By this time, that the players are, are really getting antsy, want to make it to their final destination, which was Newcastle Workers Club. They finally make it, and there's you know thousands and thousands of people there. Pandemonium, pandemonium. Um, Rocky the horse, the knight's uh, faithful uh, mascot, showing as much ticker as the ship shapes. This was Mal Reilly's words. One image sticks in my mind of the team horse Rocky trapped in the middle of the throng. I feared for what could happen if the horse turned or lashed out. However, Rocky never flinched, never moved, just stood there in this massive red and blue colour in the seething crowd. (laughs) So the party begins at Newcastle Workers Club, which was described by the operations manager as the biggest event since the earthquake. He was probably going, how can we turn this into pokey revenue? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And the party had started the moment they won the game. So one fan said, the place went crazy. People were jumping on tables. The bouncers did not even bother to control them. It was excellent. It brings a tear to my eye. You can tell it's a celebration when the biggest arsehole bouncers in New South Wales are having a night off. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And the police managed to have a bit of a night off as well. So uh, Sergeant Daryl Denman said the crowd were very well behaved. We had a few drink drivings, but we get that on any night. We had one person brought in for malicious damage and one for offensive behaviour, but that's it. It was just a happy (laughs) crowd. It was just a happy crowd. I guess even the criminals were celebrating last night. (laughs) So inside the workers' club, a sardine can, as described by Chief, Uh, The party was on. The Newcastle, Newcastle chants were going and the Knights players had a chance. They had their own private space in the auditorium to get the party going Uh, and the party raged there for the players until 8am at which point they headed straight to Marathon for their Mad Monday. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) drinking all night to start the Mad Monday. (laughs) So not all players went straight from the workers' club to Mad Monday, uh, Chief had the sense to sneak away for a bit of sleep before what he knew was going to be an extended party. I've got to say of Chief's autobiography, which is a great read, written with Brett Keeble, uh, really, really good book, um, but Keeble had free reign to go nuts in what may be the most obviously ghost-written book of all time. So... <laughs> <laughs> This was uh, Chief telling the story of leaving the Workers' Club. My last memory of that strangely surreal Sunday was walking behind the Workers' Club and down one of the back streets of Cooks Hill with my brother. We were headed towards his car so he could drive me home. The spring sky was on the turn from the ink black of night to the deep dark blue just before the dawn. (laughs) Right there, James Joyce. <laughs> I love thinking about Chief relating that story to Cable and saying, you know, like, oh, you know, when it's like night, but it's like, you know, it's kind of like <laughs> not morning, but. <laughs> Hysterical. 
Uh, and also not going straight from the Workers' Club to Marathon was Andrew Johns. But unlike Chief, he was not leaving the party to get some sleep, but he was trying to rope in his namesake, Daniel Johns, who lived near Andrew in Merriweather. Um, so Daniel Johns was woken by Andrew, who'd been let in um, by his mum, uh, and Daniel was woken up to Andrew singing I'm a Freak to him. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That iconic photo of um, <laughs> yeah. with that little bowler hat. Yeah, the, yeah. The red and blue bowler hat. I yeah. mean, we can't underestimate the impact of Silverchair on that city at that time as well. Yeah. They yeah. really put us on the map. Yeah, for sure. And I love, this was a quote from maybe a year or two before, uh, but this was Daniel Johns talking about his Newcastle and Knights bona fides. My dad was pretty pissed off about all the Super League stuff, but they've all come back, haven't they? That's all right, then. As long as there's still football every Friday and Saturday, we can sit down and watch. I don't like going to football games. There's too many people and I get too claustrophobic. I like sitting down and watching it on telly because then when you need to hang a piss, you can go. You don't have to walk through thousands of people. <laughs> hang a piss, that's the newest phrase. Um, see, the, he wasn't residing full-time with the Pixies at that point, where he would be later, but uh, yeah, <laughs> he used to live on the overlooking the heads at Merriweather. And everyone knew where his house was. So in Friday and Saturday nights, everyone drives their hotted up cars around around town doing laps. So yeah. everyone would drive past his house, beeping the horn at 3am. John's here, homo. Yeah. <laughs> to leave his hometown because of digger. Yeah. And not off with the pixies, as you phrase it at that stage, but still the ultimate fish out of water when he's dragged out of his bed to Marathon Stadium to join in on the night's Mad Monday. <laughs> <laughs> So he was at Mad Monday uh, being asked for song requests by the Knights players, him saying, what do you want me to sing? And, and then requesting K-San. <laughs> <laughs> Just get Barnsley. He would have been a perfect party. <laughs> uh, so his stay at Mad Monday wasn't too long. I think he you know, politely said goodbye after a few minutes. Not the only Knights and Silverchair running that week. So as... Chief tells it in the week after. One bizarre moment stands out from a retro 70s night at the Lucky Country Hotel. There was a full crew of 17 or 18 of us, most of whom had dressed up for the occasion. Yet here I was, sitting down in shorts and no shoes, talking to Ben Gillies, the drummer from Silverchair. About what exactly? You'd have to ask Ben. <laughs> Would you describe it as jibber? <laughs> so the nights spent Monday at Marathon um, parting up for their Mad Monday. Meanwhile, the town was preparing for a civic parade and what would turn out to be the biggest party in the city's history. See, to me, this is what it's all about. This is about the average folk getting a chance to get involved. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And so the Knights had no idea. They thought they knew the parade was on, but thought it was just going to be this, you know, hour long, go down the street and then get back into the partying. You know, there might be 20,000 people there. It turns out there was over 100,000 and it was this huge event. The Lord Mayor of Newcastle declared a half-day holiday so people could celebrate. That, in the end, was a breach of the bylaws in city statutes, which said that <laughs> there had to be seven days' notice given before a public holiday could be announced. What's more council than that than... <laughs> killing the fun on a bylaw. Yeah. So in the end, uh, employers were encouraged 
to let their workers get in on the fun. So Bob Carr, Premier at the time, said he hoped businesses could make arrangements and urging bosses to be lenient on employees if they ignored work that day. The team met at Stockland Mall, the team's major sponsor at the time, to start the parade off. As the procession went, Chief tipped his hat to another sponsor, that being his personal sponsor, NIB. Um, To me, this is the ultimate Chief story. I noticed I was holding an NIB cap. As a tribute to a loyal and long-term sponsor and friend, I'd carried it with me during the parade and held it up proudly when I passed by the health funds Hunter Street headquarters. You want to talk about one of the most symbiotic relationships in the history of sponsorship? Yeah. <laughs> chief and NIB. Yeah. I literally can't think of it without thinking of the chief. Yeah, I know, I know. So they went on from NIB at Hunter Street towards Civic Hall. Uh, Neil Whitaker and Bob Carr had been flown up by helicopter, 100,000 or more there to greet the Knights. And I want to put this to you. So the entertainment for the day was the Screaming Jets. Ideal. We've talked about Silverchair's place in Newcastle at the time, but are Screaming Jets the ultimate Newcastle band? They are, and they were still for the kids, Silverchair. They weren't legends at that point. They were just, Mm. you know, Nirvana in pyjamas, as they said. Yeah, yeah. But Screaming Jets were a man's band. Yeah. Dave Gleeson, Loose Cannon. Mm. proper frontman rock and roll, you know? Yeah, totally. People but, in Newcastle love him still. Yeah. There's this awesome video that's, you know, some kind of handheld camera, like someone in the band had taken this footage. It goes for about four minutes. You can find it on YouTube. And it's just these random cuts of the Screaming Jets leaving to go to the performance and then during the performance. And it's so cool. Like, first you get to see the iconic joey stage dive the stage was very high it was a big jump hey for a guy with yeah, yeah, cracked ribs and a, rib. and, yeah. and a punctured lung imagine <laughs> <laughs> that ended his career it's so jolly. <laughs> but gleese has got the same intensity and uh authenticity as chief no one means it more than dave gleese yeah yeah and i love the fact that he's wearing this newcastle jersey but it was like a bp era it was like old and tattered so it wasn't just, you know, he bought it that day for the performance. Like yeah. it was like a legit, you know. On grand final day, I was there in 2023 with the Knights uh, women's team winning the game. And it was so cool that their run out music was better. So yeah. it, it's still like the ultimate Newcastle anthem. But I, I want to go back to your point about what made this occasion really special was this aspect of it the fans the ordinary league supporters getting the chance to celebrate and that becoming so crucial to the story so paul harrigan called his book one perfect day but when you actually read his account the one perfect day of the book's title is actually two perfect days so uh, i'll read this the phrase i kept coming back to was one perfect day just one perfect day The grand final was a perfect day, and so was this. Not just for the Knights, but for Newcastle and its people. Not only was it a release to, you know, after these two years of war, it was a tribute to all the grinding hard men that played before. Since 88, they've always done us proud. These underdogs and don't bully the underdog is the rugby league motto. (laughs) And it was all that. It was like it was a culmination to honour everybody else who come before you too. So anyone who hasn't seen these scenes, um, you know, look them up on YouTube, find photos. Like it's just like 
it was incredible then and now looking back it's even more incredible just an insane party but the party didn't stop there for the Knights players so uh, after the parade every pub in Newcastle was packed and the Knights players did a bit of a pub crawl they settled in at the Burwood Inn in Merriweather which as Chief said it's a favorite horn of Joey's because it's not far from his home and is usually fairly quiet not this time uh, and so the last men standing were Joey, uh, Mark Hughes, who during this occasion had his nickname Hughesy changed to Boozy, which how much <laughs> do you have to drink in, in this team to, like, to get that nickname? Uh, and then Chief himself. So they were the three last men standing. And Chief, in the early hours, uh, they that actually moved on to the Empire Hotel by this point. And uh, Chief was starting to nod off at his bar stall. So as Mark Hughes tells it, despite the difference in our size and weight, I somehow got underneath Chief, draped his arm over my shoulder and dragged him out to a taxi. As I dragged him across the floor and he was semi-conscious at best, the whole pub stood and applauded him. It was half past five on a Wednesday morning at the Empire Hotel and everyone in the pub was on their feet clapping their captain. Wow. Well, I mean, that pub was the only late night pub and it was a real yeah. rough pub, like legit mm-hmm. rough full of motorcycle enthusiasts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and as the party continued, the effects were starting to be felt by the players. So in that Ben Gillies story, you might remember Chief saying that he w- was barefoot. Um, I'll give you the reason for that now. My ankles started swelling by the middle of the week. Gravity was drawing all the excess toxins and garbage down my legs to my feet and ankles to the point where I couldn't wear shoes. That would usually stop you getting in anywhere, but when we hit Newcastle's pubs and clubs that week, I was mostly barefoot. It didn't matter. <laughs> it just goes to show the rock stars they were or still are yeah. in Newcastle footballers. Yeah. Uh, so the party ended for Chief the following Saturday when he was at a barbecue and had a sip of a beer and, in his words, might as well have been sipping paint thinner. My body was finally rejecting the alcohol and I was having trouble <laughs> keeping anything down. <laughs> so just to get to the end, to me it just all comes back to this idea of being bigger than football. It goes back to the sign on the Knights locker room wall, our town, our turf, our team. Everything that was happening with the town you know, Gary John's talking about BHP. I wonder that what those people at BHP think now, walking away from a town like this, which I don't think many of the executives would have been swayed as good as uh, Joey's blindside play was. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon a, a lot of those executives are going to wear a task scarf or two in the closet. <laughs> Steve Crow, there are tears around the stadium. This win is great because it will raise the city's spirits. They'll be crying back there now. I could rattle off a, a hundred quotes about the town doing it tough and all the rest of it. And, you know, I think we talked about the sense of myth around that and that a lot of it is just like drawing at heartstrings without looking at the reality of the town and the era and everything else that was going on. But that doesn't undersell the emotion in all of this. Well, I tell you what, man, after listening to your work on this pod and the part one, it's insane to go the negative route and say half a comp, really, when why not enjoy it, you know? Yeah. It was special. I think for me, so we're telling this story as part of a larger rugby league story. So but we also have to consider the game in terms of what it meant to the war itself. And 
I don't think you can oversell the importance of this game and the way it gave momentum back. And I don't oh, mean yeah. I don't mean momentum to the ARL. I don't mean momentum away from Super League. I mean momentum for rugby league. The fact that it still matters. We can hopefully get back together and we still care. Like this is still important. Well, mate, I'll tell you what, you hit the nail on the head. If Manly won another comp, it would have been drudgery. Yeah. And then Brisbane just you know, runs through Cronulla. It just would have been absolute drudgery mm. to get this underdog's victory. I mean, it can't be understated. No. And again, it's more than just football. Like, I think it is just this great Australian story. And I've just been so enraptured in this research. I don't know. I don't want to get all soppy, but I found it really affirming. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's affected me, you know? Well, no, I can hear it in your voice. And I appreciate that. If you didn't have that big shot mentality in Sydney <laughs> the whole time, you would have known about this. All right. Well, how about then I end with the words of an honorary Novocastrian, Mal Reilly, who echoes something that you've said to me many times, that in the early days of the Knights, the people didn't care if you won or lost. They just wanted the other team to know that they'd had a game. And I thought of that when I read this from Reilly. The wonderful thing about the people of Newcastle is that you don't have to win for them. If you produce your best, give them a sense of pride in what you've contributed, then they'll give you everything in return, in support and loyalty. Absolute truth. And that's where I want to leave this chapter. A love letter to the city of Newcastle and uh, one of the great grand finals and just a really special moment in an era of rugby league that didn't produce too many of them. I hope you've enjoyed this. And as always, let us know, particularly people from Newcastle, like, Send us an email. Let us know your thoughts. Um, But we will be back. We've got a couple of chapters left. We're getting right to the end of this story. As always, some mixed feelings about that, Uh, some bittersweet emotions, but we're not quite there yet. So we will speak to you soon and uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode. Toodaloo. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.